0: We move to Luke chapter 21. I'm glad to see Justin here this morning. I have an illustration for you, young man. And hopefully someone else will get it too. We'll see. <laughs> These things happen. <clears throat> the end of 21. Verse 37. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to him and the temple to hear him. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Let's pray. Father, we are all here for a variety of reasons this morning. But our reasons for being here pale in comparison to your reason for bringing us here. As the word is preached this morning... We ask that you would accomplish your will and purpose for us this morning. May your word not return void, but may it give life to those dead in sin and trespasses. May it give wisdom to those who are confused and full of doubt. May it sanctify those who are dabbling in sin. May it encourage those who are being beaten down by their circumstances. Direct us, by word and spirit, to the greatness and sufficiency of Christ as he is presented to us in the gospel, even this morning. For our good and for your glory. Amen. Supposedly, one of my favorite stories was once called, Something That Happened. Not quite an engaging title, is it? <laughs> But then John Steinbeck happened to read the poem by uh, Robert Burns, entitled To a Mouse. And there he found the new title for his novella of Mice and Men. Part of it talks about the best laid schemes of mice and men. And that is what he got his title from, because it was all about those best laid schemes and how they often go awry. Lenny and George were friends. George was the reasonably smart one. He was the one who was working hard to keep it all together as uh, he and Lenny made their way through California during the Depression. Lenny, though great in size, was small of mind. He would get lost in the little things. He lost track of time. He lost track of what he was supposed to do. All of these things. And George was essentially his caretaker as they made their way through California from job to job and they often had to move jobs because Lenny did something he wasn't supposed to do. But they had a hope. They had a dream. So I turn for a moment to part of what I love about this story. Lenny spoke craftily. like you'd done before. Tell you what? About the rabbits. George snapped. You ain't going to put nothing over on me, Lenny pleaded. Come on, George, tell me. Please, George, like you'd done before. You get a kick out of that, don't you? All right, I'll tell you, and then we'll eat our supper. George's voice became deeper. He repeated his words rhythmically as though he had said them many times before. Guys like us that work on the ranches are the loneliest guys in the world. They got no family. They don't belong no place. They come to a ranch and work up a stake, and then they go into town and blow their stake. And the first thing you know, they're pounding their tail on some other ranch. This ain't got nothing. They ain't got nothing to look ahead to. Lenny was delighted. That's it. That's it. Now, 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 tell how it's going to be with us. George went on. With us, it ain't going to be like that. We got a future. We got somebody to talk to that gives a care about us. I'll edit that. (laughs) We don't have to sit in no bar room blowing our jack just because we got no place else to go if them other guys gets in jail they cannot for all anybody cares but not us lenny broke in but not us and why Be- because because i got you to look after me and you got me to look after you and that's why he laughed delightedly come on now george you got it by heart you can do it yourself no you "'I forget some of the things. "'Tell me about how it's going to be. "'Okay, someday we're going to get the jack together "'and we're going to have a little house "'and a couple of acres "'and a cow and some pigs and, "'and live off the fat of the land,' Lenny shouted, "'and have rabbits. "'Go on, George.' Tell about what we're going to have in the garden and about the rabbits in the cages and about the rain in the winter and, and sorry, and the stove <laughs> and, how, and, and how thick the cream is on the milk like you can hardly cut it. Tell me about it that, George. Why and don't you do it yourself? You know all of it. No, you tell it. It ain't the same when I tell it. Go on, George how about I get to tend the rabbits? They had a dream. They had a goal. They had a purpose. And that was to save money and get their own little place where they could take care of themselves. They had a plan. And the great part of this is that Lenny needed George to keep reminding him about the plan, about the dream, that they might keep moving forward. That was their best-laid plan. That would often go awry. The big idea this morning is that God's plan of salvation includes even the sinful plans of men. There are plans that go awry, but then there is God's plan, which never goes awry. Let's start with the idea that Jesus was God's plan to redeem his people. Luke, in the passage that we read this morning, relates Jesus' general schedule as he was in Jerusalem for the Passover, into Jerusalem in the mor- first thing in the morning, and then as night would fall, he and his disciples would go outside of Jerusalem, back to the Mount, all of it. Every day, Luke says, he was teaching in the temple. He spent time every day instructing the people. Why did he do this? He wanted the people to correctly understand the Scriptures and to believe the Scriptures. Wait a minute. Don't they have the priests and the scribes to do this very thing for them? Well, in another place, Jesus had called them blind guides. They were leading God's people astray because they mishandled the Scriptures. They were harming God's people, keeping them from the truth, keeping them from grace. And this is exactly what false teachers do. They lead people down blind alleys, keeping them from truth and from grace. It is so important that you find the right teachers. We have a world full of teachers, just like the Israelites then did. And there are good ones, and there are not so good ones. We must choose wisely. We must be discerning that, that what they are saying comes from the Scriptures, that we might understand that, and we might have grace and truth. Because the price to be paid for naught is too high. What happened is not only was Jesus in the temple teaching every day, but all of the people came to him. And it says early in the morning. Isn't that interesting? They were so excited that all of these pilgrims would show up early in the morning trying to bustle and get close, okay, so they can accurately hear, they can clearly hear what Jesus has to say as he begins to expound the scriptures. The people filled the temple to listen to Jesus. His teaching was quite popular, even though, you know, in Luke, he's saying hard things. He's saying difficult things but Jesus still is offering the hope of the kingdom that the people longed for. Now, the, the dream that Lenny and George had, they weren't the only ones who had that dream. And as, you know, they, as George kind of shared it with Lenny in their new place, a couple of guys overheard Candy and Crook. They wanted a part of the dream. And so they kind of this guy kind of talked Lenny and George into bringing them along when it was time when they you know because they're all gonna now gonna together if we if we join our financial resources we might more quickly get what's needed to buy the land to build the house to work together the dream had spread it had multiplied by two that's sort of what's happening. In Jerusalem, it, the, the, the desire for what is going to come is growing amongst the people. At night, Jesus and his disciples would then withdraw to the suburbs, and the word that is used there gives the, the impression that they're actually just kind of camping out. You know, They're not at the inn. Uh, they're not at the place where they would celebrate the Lord's table later in the week, uh, but they're probably, like many of the pilgrims in Passover for that uh, festival, they're kind of camping out. In the wilderness. Well, not quite the wilderness, but you know, close. But Jesus didn't come to Jerusalem just to teach. Oh, he came for that. But ultimately, Jesus came to Jerusalem to die. We see that as we've been looking at all of these little spots where Jesus pauses and lets them know what's going to happen in Jerusalem. And sometimes we we see this with Paul as well, when he was going to Jerusalem and everyone kept saying to Paul, don't go because you're going to be in prison. And Paul said, that's why I'm supposed to go to Jerusalem. Don't you get it? Jesus is pressing forward precisely because he knows he must die in Jerusalem. This is God's plan. This is God's will. It's not just God foresaw what was going to take place and predicted that it would take place. Because we see in Acts chapter 2, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless Men. Ordained by God that this is what would take place, Jesus still went forward. Going to Jerusalem to die. We have to grasp the notion that it is not enough for Jesus to be a good and wise teacher. If all he does is teach us, we are still in our sin. We still are under the condemnation of God. We need a Redeemer, not just a teacher. We don't just need more knowledge. We need a dying, bleeding Savior. So God's plan to redeem His people included Jesus' death during the Passover. Let's change our focus a little bit. Away from Jesus to the priest's. The priests planned to destroy Jesus out of fear. There had been this increasing conflict with the leaders. And I can't help of thinking of Bruce Lee's last movie, Game of Death. For those of you who aren't familiar with this, it's not like what actually came to be. Remember, the best laid schemes of mice and men often go awry. His plan for this movie was to have the, the climactic scene was him facing sequentially uh, members, the, the best fighters representing the various disciplines or styles of martial arts. And he was to kind of move up in this building and, you know, room by room, face one after another and defeat them all and to show the supremacy of Jeet Kune Do. That was what was supposed to happen. What happened is, in the midst of making the movie, he died. And so they rearranged the whole uh, plot of the movie so it had nothing to do with what Bruce Lee had in mind when he wrote this for he was not just the actor and the fighter, but the choreographer and the director and the writer of the screenplay. Everything got changed, and it went something completely different. Jesus is, in a sense, walking through the game of death because he's meeting... All the best opponents, and we see you know, taking place in Jerusalem during the week of Passover. He's having a showdown with the Pharisees. He's having a showdown with the Sadducees. He's having a showdown then with the scribes, then with the priests. He's kind of meeting them one by one, wave after wave. He takes the best that they have to try and refute him, and he prevails. He is the one who knows the truth because he is the truth. And all of the rest don't have the truth. Jesus is going to win. The Pharisees were laymen, and their disagreements with Jesus were numerous, and they were continually confounded by his replies to them. But it is the priests and the scribes who were the official religious leaders of the day, they were the officers of the church, so to speak. And it is they that move to the forefront of this plot. We see from earlier, uh, when Marty read about the the parable of the vineyard, they realized that Jesus was speaking about them. And they sought a way to destroy him. And it's interesting, there, well, it says, they were afraid of the people. We see that same phrase in our text this morning. They were afraid of the people. Unlike the people, the scribes and the the priests did not appreciate the earthly ministry of Jesus. Mice and men, I kind of think a little bit about Curly. Curly is the um, incredibly insecure son of the landowner. He used to be a boxer for a little while, and he's always afraid that someone's trying to take his wife. And he ends up being the threat to the dream because he's afraid that someone is going to steal his wife and he's looking for a way to run Lenny and George off of the farm before they can get the money they need, break the relationships that they have with Candy and Crook before they can fulfill the dream. But he wasn't trying to kill them. But the, the Pharisees the scribes and the priests, were trying to kill Jesus. They were seeking how they could put him to death. They had a plan for Jesus' life, and it wasn't wonderful. They had already decided what they would do, they just didn't know how they would do it. They're trying to figure that out. John relates this, uh, what takes place within the Sanhedrin, which is the council In John chapter 11, But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. In putting Jesus to death, the council was seeking to save Israel. They believed that if the people continued to follow after Jesus, who has just recently come into Jerusalem proclaiming himself to be king, that Rome would become angry, and Rome would try to put down the rebellion, and they were afraid that Rome wouldn't stop with Jesus and his twelve friends, that, that they would destroy all of Jerusalem including the council, because they hadn't done anything about this. So they're seeking to save Israel through the death of one man. And as John notes, because, precisely because he was high priest that year, he had spoken the word of the Lord, even though he didn't recognize it for what it was. God's going to save his people, but not the way that these men think he's going to save his people they were afraid of Rome, and they were afraid of the people, and this is what kept them from acting upon their desire. They knew that arresting Jesus publicly at this point in time, in the middle of this great feast of Israel, where the city is just overcrowded with folks, you know, forget Super Bowl weekend, okay? or if, like Daytona. I don't know if any of you have ever been to Daytona. We of us in central Florida would avoid Daytona, when it was the the weekend of the Daytona 500. You you wanted to stay off the highway that led to Daytona because you'd be stuck in traffic jams for hours. It's kind of like that, but worse. Okay, Arresting him at that point in time could have led to an incredible rebellion and riot, and that's what they were afraid of. They could not send the officers of the temple into the temple to arrest Jesus in front of the people. They knew that that was a no-win scenario. So they sat in the dark and they schemed. The leaders of Israel arrived at the same plan that God did, but for very different reasons. Third party, actually two more parties enter the scene. Judas plans to betray Jesus out of satanic delusion. Luke does not seem to be very concerned about the details of why Judas does what he does. He focuses more on the big picture of what Judas does. Some of the other gospel writers do give us hints as to why he did this. And it seems to be largely disillusionment that he was not the king that Judas thought he was going to be. We'll get back to that in a little bit. Because Luke hits on something that should frighten the daylights out of us. Satan entered into Judas. Judas was not just under the influence of Satan, but Luke would have us to believe that he was possessed by Satan. Now, we, th- we tend to think of demonic possession as something that happens in movies. You know, some of us, like, the exorcist scared the daylights out of me when I was a kid. Man, we had squirrels in our attic, okay? And so every time I'd hear them at night kind of clawing around in there, I kept thinking about the early parts of the movie when the demon was still in the attic and, like, ah, it's coming for me, man. We, we kind of get that out of your mind. That's not what this is about. This is not even like the other demonic possessions that we see in the Scriptures, in the ministry of Jesus. They were trying to destroy themselves, the, 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 or the, the demons were trying to destroy the person that they possessed at that point in time. This is more like the Garden of Eden. What happened in the Garden of Eden? Satan, that old serpent, so to speak, possessed a snake through which he deceived the woman, Eve, and also, therefore, Adam. So that's like the first satanic possession. But now, instead of a you know, a, a normal animal being possessed by Satan to deceive the first Adam, we see instead that he is possessing a person in order to destroy the second Adam. It's an important parallel for us to keep in mind as we think about this text. He's not trying to destroy the one that he possesses, but he's trying to use the one he possesses to destroy the Redeemer, the one who has come to stomp on the head of the serpent and fulfill God's gospel promises. that stretch all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Judas is not possessed unwillingly. It's not like something that happens, you know, apart from his desires. This is not like, you know, the movies where this, this poor person who does not want anything to do with the evil one is possessed by the evil one. In a sense, Judas wants this. Satan is stirring up in him, stirring him up to do what he already wanted to do. He was disillusioned. Left to himself, Judas probably would not act upon these desires. But now, under the influence and the possession of Satan, he does. I'm reminded of Luther's formulation in the bondage of the will, that there are, in a sense, you are a horse, and you could have one of two riders. You could have Christ or the evil one. And all who are outside of Christ have the evil one as their rider. That is Judas but it's not in the ordinary sense. This is an, even in a greater, more profound sense that Satan is his writer at this point. We see that the priests and the officers of the temple were glad they now had a way to kill Jesus. How warped this whole thing is. They're glad they get to kill somebody. They're delighted that there is a betrayer. And think of the betrayer. This is is part of why I had that reflection from Calvin at the beginning of your order of worship. The sense that one who was made in the image of God is now possessed by Satan himself, is an unthinkable horror. I mean, talk about um, using something for the wrong purpose, completely different from that for which it was designed. You don't use a gun as a hammer, right? You don't use a violin as a hammer, Judas, because he's made the image of God, is meant to reflect the glory and the wonder of who God is, but now he's serving the purposes of the evil one. This is, a, this is the diabolical, direct opposite of what is supposed to be taking place. And the, chief, the priests and the officers are happy that this is taking place. Jesus uh, is betrayed by Judas because Jesus wouldn't fulfill his dream his way. He wanted a king who would come in with a sword and get rid of the Romans. Judas also had many other selfish motives. He liked to take money out of the till that the the disciples had, the supply for their needs. And so it is out of this sense of disillusionment that Judas acts. And this should serve as a bit of a warning to us. That, that we too can be prone to disillusionment when Jesus does not fulfill our desire the way that we want and we too can fall into some form of rebellion against him out of frustration and anger because he didn't do what we wanted as opposed to us submitting ourselves to what he wants. Judas would have looked like a good church member up until this point. Remember, who is he? He's one of the twelve. He's not just some you know isolated crazy guy who has uh, you know like the assassins who are going to go by three names, you know. John Wilkes Booth, you know, all of these guys. He's not some crazy nut somewhere with an axe to grind. He's one of the 12 who's been with Jesus for up to three years of his earthly ministry. He's been there for every sermon Jesus ever preached. He probably was going, preach it, brother. Hallelujah. Amen. And he is the one who betrays Jesus. The movie ends with, sorry, not the movie. The movie does, too. It ends with a betrayal. Lenny has done it again. See, Lenny can't control himself. He likes to pet little tiny rabbits, but he loves them so much he kills them by mistake. Well, this time he was petting Curly's wife's hair. It's interesting, they never give her her name in the story. He just loved soft things. And he didn't want to get in trouble. And so when she began to freak out about something, he tried to silence her and inadvertently broke her neck. George saw this as the end of the dream, that the only way he could ever fulfill his dream is if he gets rid of Lenny. And instead of handing Lenny over to other people, he decides that he's going to put Lenny out of George's misery. Steals a gun goes to the prearranged spot where he knows Lenny will be waiting for him. And when his friend's not looking, kills him. Just like in Psalm 55. The one they shared bread with, the one they shared counsel with, the greatness of the betrayal. And here's the greatness of the betrayal because it is someone that Jesus broke bread with for three years. And he is the one who's going to hand him over. He's not going to pull the trigger, but he's going to hand him over to the ones who will. Judas willingly takes money. The amount of money was the price of a slave in order to betray his friend, his rabbi. So Luke says that he sought an opportunity, opportunity to betray him. He's waiting to strike at the right moment when the crowds are not there. He's waiting. What we see is that God, the priests, Judas, and Satan. Are all willing the same thing, the death of Jesus. But all of them are willing the same thing for different reasons. This is called the doctrine of concurrence. We see this in places like the end of Genesis with Joseph and his brothers. We see it in Job chapters 1 and 2. We see it mentioned in Acts chapter 2. And here we see it kind of fleshed out for us to notice what's kind of going on with all of this. The doctrine of concurrence is not something just for the Bible, but we see it taking place in our ordinary daily lives because God has willed whatsoever shall come to pass into your life. Everything that you decide or that happens to you comes as a direct result of of God ordaining it. But that doesn't mean that you choose that thing for the same reason God chose it. He chooses it to ultimately display His glory and His grace. We often have far baser motives. And the things that happen to us that are outside of our control—you know, when people act in certain ways, their motives are far different from God's motive in accomplishing the same end. And this should humble us. We need to remember that God is in control. Uh, He's even sovereign over those who seek to destroy us. We have to remember that His goal for us, because we are His, that He has elected us, He has uh, saved us by His Son, He has justified us, He has adopted us, that His purposes for us are good, even though the circumstances may not be good. Never think that somehow you've stepped outside of God's ordained will. You may have broken his moral law. Okay? You may have broken his revealed will, but according to what God ordains, you are, you are exactly where you belong. Because if you think you aren't where you belong, you're more likely to fall into despair or you're likely to break God's law in order to try and get back to where you think you belong. Need to rec- remember God's the doctrine of God's providence and God's sovereignty as we encounter these unexpected things that take place. None of these human actors or even satanic actors realize that they're accomplishing God's purpose. They don't think they are. The death of Jesus, which they all desired, would actually accomplish all that they despised. It's not going to bring an end to Jesus and his followers. It's not going to put the this growing sect of the Nazarene to death. It's not going to save Jerusalem from the Roman armies. It's not to accomplish any of that. It's not going to put an end to God's designs for salvation, as Satan had hoped. Jesus replaces the priests. He ends their earthly ministry. He ends the ministry of the temple. Jesus would fulfill his destiny and crush the head of Satan through what comes on the cross. God saves his people, even though his people tried to stop it. So, George and Lenny, they shared a dream. And as they shared that dream, more people joined them in their dream. But George realized that Lenny stood in the way of fulfilling that dream. Lenny had to die. George is a lot like Judas when he realized that Jesus would not help him fulfill his dreams. He realized the king must die. Betrayal. But in this case, the death of Jesus accomplished a far greater dream than that that was had by the priests, the Sadducees, the scribes, the Pharisees, and all of the disciples themselves. It would be for the redemption of the true Israel, I can't help but wondering are we still clinging to our small dreams? Or have we entered into the greater reality of God's purposes by faith in Christ? Let's pray. Father, in many ways, this is just like a, a, a Greek tragedy. And we, we, the, the, the import of kind of what happens and the details of kind of how this plan of salvation of yours kind of plays out just seems like another great tragedy. And we see the sin that is present there in so many different ways. And it's easy for us to lose sight of the fact that you are in control. That this is not just something that happened. Kind of betraying uh John Steinbeck's existentialism, but it was not a story that just wrote itself, and this is not a series of events that just happened, but were ordained by you for the glory of your name and for the good of your people. So help us to rest confident in what Christ has done for us and to, to recognize the depths of sorrow He endured. Even as we see the betrayal of a friend, that we might grow in our love for Christ as we see what He out of love has done for us. And so really expand, give us eyes to see that, Father, that we might be humbled and encouraged. In Jesus' name, amen.